welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silken in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Calagana. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. Thank you very much. And I'm also joined here by students who are in the History Society and Edinburgh Political Union. People, make yourselves known. <laughs> Listeners at home, we have a crowd of thousands of here. Uh, for us to talk about the midterms, we're recording this a couple weeks after the midterms, and we got most of the results back, but served to do a, an autopsy, if you will, on the midterms now that they're over and to put them into some historical context. So, Frank, going into the midterms, the, the supposition was the punditry was saying that this was going to be a red wave election, that this was going to be a overwhelming victory for Republicans. Why did people, th- and obviously that, spoiler alert, that didn't happen. Uh, why did people think that was likely to happen? I did a couple of radio bits for BBC Scotland in the run-up to the election, and I'm so happy I never uttered the phrase red wave, um, which I could well have done, mm. because it's certainly what I expected going in was that the Republicans would probably have a kind of 10-seat majority in the House, whether that's a red wave or not is debatable, do well in the gubernatorial elections, and the Senate would be a toss-up. And... I wasn't entirely wrong about that, but as we know, they've got a very narrow majority in the House. They did not win the Senate and didn't do quite so well at the state-level elections as expected. So you're right. In terms of what was predicted, the red wave did did not happen. A little, I think we ought to demonstrate or or, uh, express a little charity for people who were saying that in the run-up to the election because... Some of the polls seemed to indicate that was going to happen. Certainly history suggested that that would happen because historically the party out of power does very, very well in midterm elections. President Biden's approval rating isn't great, although it's been ticking up a bit lately, but it's not great. And so all those things seem to indicate, or those factors in particular, Mm. concerns about inflation. I've just been in the United States. Inflation's not as, as... uh, high there as it is here in the UK, but it's still pretty high and it's a, it's a concern for people. All those things combined together seem to suggest there was going to be a red wave. I think we'll get to why there wasn't mm. in the next few minutes, but uh, I, I, I think voters <laughs> took another view. Yeah. What's, well, what's well, your, yeah, what's your think, take? I mean, I think you're right. The conventional wisdom is that, that in the president's first midterm election, especially, that the, the President's party doesn't do very well, and there's some very good recent examples of this that I think pundits were drawing upon uh, in the 1994 election. Uh, this is after uh, Bill Clinton's uh, midterm, first midterm. Uh, they lost 52 seats in the House and eight in the Senate, which the Clinton administration described as a bloodbath. This was the uh, year of the uh, contract with America the Republicans had under Newt Gingrich. Uh, if you look at the um, 2010 election, that is President Obama's first uh, election, midterm election, he lost uh, 63 seats in the House and six in the Senate. Obama called that a shellacking. Yes, if I can interrupt you there, yes. uh, that helped introduce shellacking into the British vernacular because I had friends and colleagues say to me, what does shellacking mean? Okay. But after 2010. So anyway, carry it's on. It's not a word that Americans use that much anyway, no. but okay, so, so it's shellacking. It's kind of a, it's an old-fashioned word. Right. Um, yeah, the people have had different words for what this this thing is, and so that's and and Trump lost forty seats in the House in his in his midterm. So the the track record, at least 
for much of the you know, recent midterm elections have tended to fall in that direction. And put another way, since 1902, hmm. the party in power has only gained seats three times. In 1934, during the Great Depression, in 1998, uh, in the aftermath of the hearings over the Monica Lewinsky scandal, and in 2004, after the 9-11 attack. Hmm. So, so the party in power generally doesn't gain seats in midterm elections. And, and again, the, the Democrats did not gain seats this time, but they certainly exceeded expectations. Well, they may have gained seats in the Senate. Right, yes, that's Depending right. on the outcome of, of that, right. Um, and so it wasn't as, as much of a tidal wave as possible. And part of it, I think, is you know usually when a president wins an election, there's lots of down-ballot races that the president's party carries because people are voting for whoever wins the presidency. And the midterm is a kind of a reversion to, to the mean, if you will. Um, also, the party in power, I mean, the, the, the American electorate is fairly centrist, but the activists in both sides are just that. Mm -hmm. They're active, but the party out of power, their activists tend to be more motivated in off-year elections than the party in power. There's a tendency to think, yeah, well, we've got the White House, we've got mm -hmm. the presidency, we don't really need to go out and vote. But yeah. th that was not the case this yeah. time. And, and this had a higher voter turnout for a midterm than, than usually you have. So, uh, We're in a room full of young people. Young people turned out in high numbers. At least in higher numbers than they yeah. usually do, right? Um, so why didn't this happen? Why didn't we end up with you know one of these examples where it was a blood bash or, or the shellacking or a thumping, um, which was uh, what uh, George W. Bush called the second his second midterm? I think it, I mean I think the answer is relatively straightforward, and I think there were I think there are two aspects of this. I think. To some extent, the former president was on the ballot. I mm. think uh, Trump and Trump-endorsed candidates did not do very well, even among those Republicans who succeeded. And I think abortion was on the ballot. I think, uh, and there was some concern among Democrats and Democratic pollsters in, in October that the kind of backlash against the Dobbs decision from the summertime had crested, if a backlash can crest, mm. <laughs> the, the, the reaction against it had crested. And we saw, but, but that wasn't the case. I think we saw, Earlier in the year, in the summertime, the ballot initiative in Kansas, you know, Kansas is a pretty red state that was rejected. Um, uh, it was a ballot initiative to, 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 to uh, ban abortion. And, and I think that the Dobbs decision back in June and the fact that reproductive rights were on the ballot or were perceived to be on the ballot made the difference. I think those two factors, I think, antipathy towards President Trump and what he stands for, at least uh, for, for a large part of the electorate, and these two things overlap. If there's a Venn diagram of these two, they're probably overlapping mm. circles. And and concern about reproductive rights were, were what made the difference. What do you think? Oh, I think I had the same same reasons. I think the Dobbs decision was a major factor in getting lots of people out to vote, especially lots of young people out to vote. I think, you know, usually we think of the midterm as being a referendum on the sitting president. In this case, it was a referendum on the sitting president and the former president simultaneously, which is uh, unusual. And I think a lot of the Trump-backed candidates weren't great candidates. They, they, there were some of the people who made it through Republican primaries to be on the ticket that weren't particularly strong, but, but won because they had Trump's backing in, in the primary. Uh, and there, we have some examples of Republicans voting for some of the rest of the ticket, but not voting for the Trump-backed candidate, and not sort of crossing over and voting for the Democrat, but simply leaving that one blank. Yeah, so Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, for example. Herschel Walker might still get elected in Georgia, but he's proved yeah. to be a weak and controversial candidate. But you know, in that case, you've got the Republican governor, Kemp, running for re-election, getting a lot of votes and winning pretty decisively, relatively speaking, whereas a lot of those voters, people who voted, showed up to vote for him, 
passed on voting for Herschel Walker. And in this, it's similar. It was reminiscent to me, David, of 2010 and 2012 when the Tea Party movement first mm. emerged, which is to some extent the antecedent of the current iteration of the Republican Party. And they, they nominated some pretty extremists and some pretty bizarre candidates and didn't do quite as well as they should have in those, uh, in those elections. And, and I think we see a little bit of that. So some, some of the candidates were uh, kind of tough to take, I think, even mm. for, for, for supporters from their own side. And again, the Trump voters, uh, sorry, the Trump-endorsed Trump candidates and the, the self-described Trumpists, I'm thinking about a lot of the candidates for Secretary of State mm -hmm. in, in the various states, um, you know, who were election deniers, didn't do very well. By election deniers, I mean questioning the results of the 2020 election. Didn't do particularly well. I think another factor that, that really contributed in, in to at least some of this history is that when the party out of power does really well, they have a clear agenda of what they're going to do. So thinking about the 1994 election, the Republicans had this contract with America where they had here the 15 things we are going to do if you vote for us. Um, and likewise, when you know in 20, 2010, when they're when they're running against Obama, they say, "Look, we're running against these particular policies. We have very specific things that we plan to do if you elect us." Um, whereas I think this year the Republican Party, other than their support for Trump and their election denial, they didn't have a positive agenda that they were running on to unify them. Yeah, or if you if. You don't always have to have a positive agenda mm. if you're the party out of power. You can run against the party in power, but Joe Biden isn't scary. You know, I think they tried to make Joe Biden scary, yeah, yeah. but when they, you know, they released that, uh, you guys probably saw there was a kind of image that ran around and, uh, that was released by the, the GOP that became a meme of Joe Biden with sunglasses on, eating ice cream with the flames behind him. He actually looked incredibly cool, you know? <laughs> and so it, it was difficult. Mm. I mean, they've tried to say Biden is senile and, and there were questions about his age and things like that, but they, conjuring him as a villain wasn't very successful because he's not particularly villainous. Mm. One of the things that's interesting to me about the midterms um, is the polling was wrong, and this is that we've had a bunch of elections now where polling has gotten increasingly less accurate, at least compared to how it was maybe in the 70s and 80s where the polling seemed to have been more accurate in predicting elections. Yeah, I mean, you don't remember it, David, because you're too young, but they used to call elections on election night within about five minutes of the polls closing because they had exit polling mm. that was very accurate. I'd slightly push back uh, on the notion that the polls were wrong this time. Mm. I think the polling in the past two elections has actually been pretty accurate. It's been more, it was off in 2016 and it was off in 2018. I think they've actually adjusted mm. and the polls have been more accurate. They're not as accurate as they used to be, mm. I think, because of the nature of the electorate. Uh, it's, you know, who here picks up a phone call on your mobile when you don't know who the caller is? Probably nobody, right? And so mm. it's very difficult to poll people. It's more difficult to yeah. poll people than it used to be. So I think there's a degree of inaccuracy in polling now that we just have to accept as kind of yeah. noise around it. But the polls weren't that far off. The expect I think the polls combined with the conventional wisdom, which we began mm. with, made people think there was going to be a red wave and created an expectation of a red wave, which has actually created a problem for the Republicans because their defeat, they still won the House, mm. looks more momentous than it really was because politics is always about expectations. Sure. So the expectations were one way. 
the polls weren't actually that far. I, yeah. slightly, well, with I mean, respect, push back. I mean, because I think there was a golden age of polling where where people did pick up the phone when the pollster called at dinner time, and people would tell the pollster what their political opinions were. And I think that age is is gone, and I think the you know, pollsters have said how hard it is to get the kind of sample that they need. Uh, you know, how many hundreds of people they need to call in order to get one person to answer all their questions, uh, whereas it used to be. A, a much easier Sure, but it, it's become conventional wisdom that polling is bad yeah, now, ever exactly. since 2016, yeah, exactly. and it was off in 2016, but it's actually been more and more accurate since then. I think we're, in a, we're entering, I yeah. know nothing about polling, but we're entering a new age of polling. Um, the other thing that struck me that's interesting about this election is, this was, there was a lot of money in this election. There was $17 billion in this election spent on, on advertising, which is more than any other midterm. You could almost buy like a third of Twitter with that or something. Well, you could, you could buy bribe, all Twitter now. You could maybe. bribe FIFA to give you the World Cup. Oh, that, that too. All these things you could spend that money on. But one of the things that's interesting to me about that is it's not just people giving money to top-level races for governor or for senator or what have you. There's a lot of money that's going into local races, into school boards, going into you know uh, state legislatures in a way that it hadn't before, which I think is an interesting way in which this, the, the politics and the money in politics is changing quite profoundly. And those down-ballot races are be, used to be very, very local, and they're becoming much more national. You know, they're asking the school board people, are you a Trump supporter or not, in a way that school board elections used to be. Are you willing to be on the school board? If so, you're elected. Um, or do you support critical race theory? theory? Exactly. Right? All these issues become much more national in, in Oregon. People tend not to pay too much attention to midterms compared to presidential elections, um, at least historically. What midterm elections in the past do you think are, are particularly important? Well, I'd actually disagree with that, the premise of your question. Oh, okay. I think if, you, if you think about the media response to this, I mean, I, in mm. fact, I flew to the U.S. on the 9th, so it's the Wednesday right after the election, and I was up very early to get my flight, and I put on BBC News 24, and again, well, I've been in the U.K. for 30 years now, the BBC didn't used to cover midterm elections live mm. the way they did now. In part, 24-hour news channels want material. Sure. But I think that proves my point that, <laughs> but, that this, yeah. this one's getting a lot of attention, but just in the past, people but, haven't always paid as much attention. To right, this. but I think in the recent past they have, I think, okay. they, because they we're in a non-stop cycle. But, but the previous ones, um, I think 2004, uh, sorry, 2002 was really interesting because of the wake of 9-11. I think mm. it was very interesting to see I think that that one received a, a, quite a lot of coverage. I'm trying to think of others. I mean, you, you've got okay, a list I've, there. I've got, you, I've you, got, you've set me up. So, so sure. <laughs> so here's some, go through your list. Here, here's some that I think are, are really interesting and important. 1826. If we're going to back, uh, of course. <laughs> what do you mean, of course? Of course. So, so the origin of, of this one uh, is that that Andrew Jackson in the 1824 presidential race got the majority of, they got the large number of votes, but didn't win because of some kooky ways in which the Electoral College works. Lucky that's never happened since. Um, and his supporters rally in the two years between that election and the midterm to basically create an entire new political party built around electing Andrew Jackson and his supporters. And so in that election, you really have the entire political landscape change in that space of two years. Can I interrupt you, David? Uh, yes. so, so, uh, so would you date the birth of the modern Democratic Party to that election? Because, of course, they trace a lineage back to 
Jefferson, but is it it's is it more a, accurate to say? It, I think it's, it's a version of uh, of the Democratic Party dates to that particular election. Yes. Okay, but I'm I'm putting you on the spot. But, yes, I think you I mean you can you can do the Jack you know the Jefferson version of the of the Democratic Party if you want to, but I think the you know particular version of the Democratic Party that. I think we're with today really starts in, in 1826, and Martin Van Buren is doing a lot to sort of organize a modern political, modern, modern whatever that means in that, in that window. Um, I think 1866 is a really important midterm. Uh, the background to this one is, is that Andrew Johnson is now president after Lincoln is assassinated. He is a Southern Democrat who's leading a, a Northern Republican party. He is very unhappy with Congress. Um, his Congress has a very different vision of what Reconstruction uh, should look like and what the rights of African Americans should be after slavery. Johnson goes on a campaign against Republicans in Congress. He goes on a massive uh, train tour in which he manages to pick fights with audience members and hecklers, throw things at him, and then he proceeds to threaten them and wants to fight them. Um, it's called the swing around the circle, and it backfires spectacularly. It's like one of the few times in which, in the 19th century, the president is actively involved in midterm elections in terms of the campaigning for it. And he ends up with a Congress that is a veto-proof majority in both houses, and it goes disastrously for Are there him. echoes there of uh, you know Trump's rallies in the run-up to the recent midterms? I mean, he enjoys those rallies, and his supporters really like them, but they may not have done the party generally any favors. They're different from Trump rallies. I mean, they are similar to Trump rallies in as much as, as, as the sort of the, the anger and aggression and the occasional vulgarities uh, spill into it. The difference, I think, is that Andrew Johnson is actually sometimes confronting hostile audiences, whereas Trump, I think, very much cherry picks who he has in his crowd and picks on the media or whoever it is as, as being the enemy in the room if they're gonna heckle people. Um, I think bad economies lead to bad midterm elections, and if we look at times when the party in power really does get a shellacking, uh, there's some there's some really great examples of that. In 1894, the Democrats lost 116 seats, uh, in large part because there was a huge uh, economic collapse, the Panic of 1893. That's the largest loss of a a party in a in a single election. Um, and the same thing happens in in 1930. Uh, during the Great Depression, where the Republicans lose uh, 49 seats as a, as a consequence of that. So I think there are, there are lots of these midterms that are, are uh, you know, quite important. And obviously the, the one in 1994, I think, is probably the one many political thinkers are, are, were, were anticipating happening this time. Uh, and it required Bill Clinton to, to govern in a very different way in his final six years than in his first two. That in his first two years he had he was you know very ambitious and progressive and he definitely comes out of that election moderating the voice of the options he has given a, a Republican Congress and I think the same thing happens to Obama to a lesser extent where he has to sort of moderate his ambitions as a consequence of, of the midterm elections. The difference being that they were still able to legislate at some level. Mm. At least Clinton was. Obama was really hamstrung. Um, I don't see that happening in the next two years because the Republican majority is so narrow hmm. that the, well, every faction of the party is going to have a veto essentially over what they do. And some, you know, I'm thinking of the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene, hmm. Matt Gates, and so on, are really committed to 
well, they're committed to you know impeaching Biden, having investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop, things mm -hmm. like that, and not doing anything else. So I'm not sure there's going to be any legislation uh, over the any meaningful legislation in the next two years. That seems likely, although with such a narrow majority in the House, weird things can happen, you know, because that does mean all these coalitions get a veto if they all stick together. Yep. And there is the possibility of a small number of Republicans side and side with Democrats on, on particular issues that they have common interest in. Um, and it means that when House members die or resign or other things, that could actually have a meaningful you know, outcome in, in terms of the balance of power over the next two years. Yes, yeah, so if we're talking about winners and losers, and I imagine we will eventually hmm. from this election, Kevin McCarthy, the incoming Speaker of the House, might actually be a loser. Um, he's achieved his life's ambition, but his life is going to be hell now because he's going to have to try and hold together that coalition of, of Republicans, and they are a very diverse and combative group of people. Yes, I think that's right. And you could end up with some weird outcomes for, for the speakership and other kinds of things. And yes, I'm assuming he's going to win. He may not even... That's not even a done yeah. deal yet. So it seems like the 20, now that the midterm is over, or mostly over, the 2024 race has begun, uh, now that former President Trump has, has, has announced he's running again, uh, and it's supposed that Biden will announce at some point, uh, and maybe other people will throw their hat in the ring. What does the midterms mean for 2024? Before we do that, yes. should we say something about Georgia and the oh, outstanding should we, should, Senate yeah, race? Should. should we deal with that first? And then we can that, yeah, that is one bit of the outstanding part. That's of the, quite significant. Yes. Um, sure. So, uh, you know, in Georgia, Georgia had two runoffs, I guess, the last election. This seems to actually be uh, quite common in Georgia. There's an origin story between the, for the uh, reason why Georgia has so many runoffs that I want to talk about. But we have uh, the sitting senator, um, Raphael Warnock, running against Herschel Walker, uh, Walker, the former football player uh, and uh, interesting character and candidate. Yes. yes. And so Warnock barely beat Walker in the election mm -hmm. just held, but because there was a third party or libertarian candidate, neither, no one, uh, Warnock didn't have a majority of the vote. Right. didn't get more than 50% of the vote. So that ends the runoff. Now, in most states, you don't need a runoff in this case. Whoever gets the most votes wins. Yeah. But one of the things about elections in the United States is it's there is very little of the election system that's national. Each state has their own particular weird rules uh, that you need to sort of figure out in, in each, each every time there's an election. And Georgia has a rule that you have to have fifty percent. Do you know why they have that rule, Frank? I do. Do you want to explain? Yes, it? to try and prevent black candidates from winning. <laughs> Statewide, right, basically, this is a vestige yeah. of, of the civil rights. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so in 1966, when the Voting Rights Act is is is, is in, in place and African Americans in Georgia are getting to vote, one of the things that white segregationists in Georgia were worried about was that there would be two white candidates who would split the white vote, and therefore an African American might end up with 40 percent of the vote in the majority and win. And therefore, they instituted the system in which you have to have a majority on the supposition that if there is a runoff, even if all the black voters work together, that the white voters will all vote for the white person. And so That's there's an irony here that both Raphael Warnock and, and Herschel Walker are black yes. uh, in the current runoff. And two years ago, when there were two runoff elections, which is what gave the Democrats their slim uh, hold on, on the Senate, uh, 
both those runoffs went the way of the Democrats, and, and again, paradoxically, uh, the people who engineered those, those laws 50 or 60 years ago would probably be, wouldn't be too pleased that um, John Ossoff, who won one of those seats, is Jewish, and Raphael Warnock, who won the other, is mm. African-American. But uh, So that, that's the origin story for that, but the, there's a lot at stake in this because if the Democrats, if Warnock wins, then the Democrats will have a majority in the mm. Senate, a clear majority, about 51 votes instead of 50, um, which gives them an advantage in terms of committee assignments because the committee assignments in, in the Senate are done according to the proportion of, of uh, senators that a party has. And so at the moment, they'd be 50-50. Now the Democrats would have a clear majority, so there's a lot at stake there. Um, there's a lot at stake because, of course, the Senate will be up for grabs again in two years' time, and so both parties, the Senate's so evenly divided that even a one-seat majority could be, could be quite critical. How do you think this plays out? My own view is because the Republicans have lost the Senate and they don't love Herschel Walker, mm. I think this might depress Republican turnout for the runoff. Although Republicans historically tend to turn out in higher numbers for special elections mm -hmm. yeah. than, than Democrats. Democrats have the wind at their backs, although I was talking to a Democrat yesterday, uh, two days ago before I came back, um, who felt the opposite was true. The Democrats will think, well, the job's done, we don't have to worry about this. So it's, well, I think what do you think? I think both sides are gonna be spending a lot of money in the, in the ensuing weeks until the midterm, or until this runoff to try to persuade people to show up. Um, and I think people do recognize you know, what's at stake for both Every sides. five minutes I'm getting emails asking me to give money to a particular candidate. Yeah, I can't sure. divulge which candidate, but uh, I'm getting emails and joining me to give them money. Right, so let's, what, 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 let's go back to my earlier question. Then. What is the, uh, consequence of this weather, regardless of what happens in Georgia for, for 2024? Well, there were two big winners, I think, um, two weeks ago. Ron DeSantis, who we haven't mentioned, the mm. governor, Republican governor of Florida, who won an overwhelming election in Florida, defeating the Democrat Charlie Crist. Ron DeSantis is, I think, was kind of crowned the big winner mm. on, on Wednesday or Thursday, right after the election. And I think that's true. DeSantis won decisively. DeSantis is a very conservative figure uh, in terms of his policies. They're not a whole lot different from Trump's in many ways. But he's more palatable to a lot of people than Trump. So I think, uh, and, and because DeSantis was declared the winner, I think that's what drew former President Trump uh, out of his lair and, and uh, at Mar-a-Lago and convinced him to declare. So I think there's going to be a very interesting battle between Trump and DeSantis, and we can get to that in a second. Mm. And Joe Biden, those were the two big winners. If Biden was on the ballot, the Democrats won, even, it, well, even if it wasn't overwhelming. And, and I think there's an interesting dynamic at play here because I think Biden's age is certainly an issue, mm -hmm. and a lot of Democrats are concerned about that. I think Biden believes with some justification, because he's done it, that he's best placed to defeat Trump. So if Trump is the Republican nominee, then it was an especially good night for Joe Biden because I think, and I spoke to a couple of activists when I was in the States, uh, and I asked them this very question, and they said, no, it's got to be Biden now, which surprised me because I thought there'd be, a, and I still think there will be a debate within the party about getting, about possibly replacing him. However, if DeSantis is the nominee for the Republicans, I think Biden's a particularly weak candidate because DeSantis is in his early 40s. He exudes youth, he's, you know, he, and DeSantis, I think DeSantis is a much trickier 
candidate for Biden to run against. Mm. And if, it, if, if, if the Democrats had a crystal ball and could tell who the Republican candidate were going to be, I think their choice, their, their calculus would be different. The outcome would be different. I think it's, it's more complicated for them. I, uh, so, so I think there's a really interesting dynamic at play here. And there is the question as to whether it'll be somebody else. At the moment, there don't seem to be any other candidates emerging. I mean, we're, oh, we're two years away. It used to be, be there be a breathing space be. between elections, but those days are over. It does seem to me that the Republican choice is going to come down to DeSantis or, or Trump. Hmm. The Democrats, well, this was a good result for Biden and a good result for the Democrats generally, are a little bit stuck because they can't address their Biden problem, if we, if we can call it that, in terms of his age and whether to go with another candidate, until they know what the Republicans are going to do. And obviously they can't wait until the Republican... Uh, uh, primaries are over to do that. Mm. So somebody would have to either, Biden would have to step aside. I don't think there's going to be a challenge in the way that Ted Kennedy challenged Jimmy Carter in 1980. Um, that, that's the closest analog. Yeah. I don't think that's going to happen, but I don't know. And then there's a the question of who would be the Democratic nominee if it's not Biden. What do you think? I think you're, you're your analysis is, is, is spot on. I think one of the things that makes, he's right about most things. Um, one of the things I think that makes this interesting is, is having both a sitting president and a former president run against each other, right? And, you know, we, there is a history of former presidents running for office again, but it just hasn't happened recently. So actually in the 19th century, this was moderately common. I, I say, I, I thinking this morning, I could think of six examples of former presidents at least considering running again uh, after they've left office. And in one case in which the former president ran again and won, that's Grover Cleveland, who always gets counted twice whenever they count presidents. Uh, so we've had 46 presidents, but only 45 people, uh, for reasons that baffled me. That's the way they've always numbered them. Because um, Cleveland served, lost, lost and then won again. again. So right. there's a gap yeah, between yeah. his terms. Um, but we have a few other examples of, of presidents running for, for former presidents running, uh, in, or at least considering throwing their hat in the ring enough to be, be considered a legitimate candidate, and then not ending up. How strong do you, a candidate do you think DeSantis really will be? Uh, one thing to observe, and, and, and this mm. sounds like trivia, but maybe it's not, he's short. And I say this is somebody who's five foot eight. I am not tall. DeSantis is about five eight, and no, the taller candidate always wins. <laughs> Look it up. <laughs> and and d disproportionately, there have been presidents who have been tall. There have been, there yeah, been ex I mean, exceptions to that. James taller, Madison. Yeah, Madison was small, but in the Certainly in the television era, right, the taller yes. candidate has won. Uh, but I'm not, we can leave that aside if you want, but DeSantis hasn't really been tried mm -hmm. on a national level. The, he's been associated with the Don't Say Gay Bill in Florida yeah. and his fight, you know, he picked a kind of culture war fight with Disney. He's been quite adept at this kind of stuff, but he hasn't been subject to intense scrutiny. He also hasn't been subject to a lot of attacks by Trump gave him a mm. nickname, which is a bad sign because Trump is very good mm. at bestowing insulting nicknames on his rival. So he's called him Ron DeSanctimonious. And once Trump, yeah. you know, he got little Marco and low energy mm -hmm. Jeb and lion Ted Cruz. I mean, he's actually in a kind of bullish preternatural. He has a kind of preternatural ability to find somebody's weakness and really, yeah. and, and, and so what, what uh, he's, DeSantis hasn't been tried yet. No, he's not, he's not as good on television as Trump is. He doesn't have that sort of charisma. I think that Trump, uh, that some people see in Trump. Um, and, and it's going to be a very interesting primary in as much as, you know, what 
people nationally want doesn't really matter. It's what matter people in Iowa want, or at least Republicans to show up uh, in, in Iowa and New Hampshire and what have you in, in the primaries and caucuses. We need to throw this open to, yes, the, to the body of the Kirk, but is Trumpism dead? Not yet. I don't think it, yes, I, I think it'd be too soon to, to, to bury it. But let's open the floor for, for questions, comments, thoughts. Speak up. Um, um, a demographic that usually has quite strongly affiliated with the Democratic Party in these mid-elections seems to have slightly shifted towards the Republicans, which is a Hispanic vote. How would you explain that in the current economic climate? So the question is explaining the kind of shifting demographic, <laughs> uh, the shifting voting pattern among Latinos and, and Hispanics in the United States. Historically Democratic, but less so. Well, and it's... I think you can disaggregate the, the, the Latino vote into a number of different categories depending on, you know, I think the Cuban vote has a very particular history to it. You know, the, the, the communities that have been in the United States for a number of generations, those are different than immigrant communities. And so I think there, it, it's talking about it as the Hispanic vote, I think, is, is, is may lump people together, which may not see themselves as being part of a coherent. Uh, political block. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a good point. David. It's a, first of all, it's the simple size of it. As mm. it grows, it's going to reflect a diversity mm. of, of opinions. And, and it's a very, <coughs> excuse me, it's a very, very large and growing part of the population of the United States. And just its very size and the, the diversity and, and um, uh, the kind of diverse backgrounds they come from are, uh, help help explain that. Also, the Republicans have actually paid a lot of attention, you know, to trying to win over um, Latinos. And they know, I think, at some level, I, I heard a story, I think, on National Public Radio in, in the run-up to the election, or it might have been in The Economist. Um, forgive me for not citing my sources. You guys cite your sources in your essays, but I'm not doing it here. Um, made the observation that they've really made a, that the Republicans, I think the example they used was in Allentown, Pennsylvania, were really making a play at winning over Latino voters. They didn't expect to win them all, or mm -hmm. even get a majority, but they were saying, if we just take enough of them off in, in an election, the Pennsylvania election was so close, it might make a difference. And so I think the Republicans have really dedicated resource to this. The Democrats will counter. I mean, it's very interesting to see how better O'Rourke did. He lost his election in, in Texas, but he did very well in the Rio Grande Valley, mm -hmm. which is heavily Latino. Um, but uh, I, I think it's an excellent question. I think because that population is so large, I think it will split like the rest of the U.S. population uh, in coming years. Um, and it's not monolithic, but I think uh, the, the Republicans' investment has been paying off because they also did well... You know, Trump did pretty well with Latinos in 2020, and despite mm. having spent, you know, five years since 20, he announced in 2015 excoriating, you know, Mexican rapists and et cetera, et cetera, and saying some pretty horrible and racist mm. things about Latino immigrants, um, the Republicans did surprisingly well with Latinos yeah. in 2020. Especially Latino men. I yeah. think there was an, there was an argument that it, there was like a machismo of, of Trump that appealed to some something. You know, but, but questions about abortion. <laughs> fall different ways for different segments of the Hispanic vote. I think immigration falls different ways. You would think, you know, potentially that all, you know, they, but they don't. There's a diversity of opinions, and especially in, in some states about, about, about those issues. So, 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a big group and a hard group to predict. An increasingly hard group to predict. And it's not monolithic. And there's generational change, and you know, the Cuban population in Miami is not the Cuban population in Miami from 30 years ago, which used to all sort of vote as a block. Well, we've got multiple hands yeah. calling you in. Yeah, um, I was going to ask because the the Dobbs decision and which mm. overturned Roe v. Wade has been cited a lot as a really important factor in this. Is there a sort of precedent for a Supreme Court decision having a significant impact in US elections in sort of deciding the way people vote for a particular party? It's a really good question. What was the immediate aftermath of the Brown decision, David, in 1954? How did it affect the 56, uh, do you know? Um, that's a good question. Um, I'm thinking, actually, I think back- I don't know, which is why I asked so, so, <laughs> I'm gonna think back, though, 100 years to, to, to um, the Dred Scott decision, yeah. because that did factor actually very heavily into uh, the 1858 midterms. And probably the most famous candidate in, in the 1858 midterms was Abraham Lincoln, who was running for the Senate seat from Illinois. And one of the questions that Lincoln posed to, to you know, that, that was a central issue in the debates he had with Stephen Douglas as they both ran for that seat was about you know, the outcome of, of the Dred Scott decision and the ways in which you know, that limited certain kinds of political options because Douglas was arguing in favor of popular sovereignty and his popular sovereignty no longer on the table. So that's a, an example of a place where it really did have a big impact on, on that midterm election for that race in particular, but more races more broadly. The interesting thing about the Dobbs decision is it's the first time in the modern era, at least, that the Supreme Court took away a right mm. from from the public. And so we're in kind of uncharted territory about how the, how the public responded to that. And it's interesting because the evidence shows that a significant part of the electorate are very concerned about that. And again, going mm. back to the top of the show, this helps explain the outcome and why there was no red wave. Sure. What really did kind of strike me with this election was that I feel like the, the Democrats really put a lot of emphasis on this idea of saving democracy if mm. you vote for them. And I, I, I thought that was quite interesting because I feel like if that sort of insinuates that in a way democracy is already lost because you only have one option really to save it. I was wondering why they emphasize that so much and what they're rationale is for arguing that they are like the defender of democracy. Dave and I, that's a great question, so, so in case that didn't get picked up, the question was about the Democrats using this rhetoric about saving democracy, and Joe Biden gave a speech in late October basically laying out that case. Dave and I had an argument about this before one of our episodes a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, and I objected to this, this line of reasoning mm. and this, this argument because, uh, not entirely along the lines you, you were framing it, uh, but I said, well, if they lose, and if and history suggests they they might, what do you do the next day, right? If you if you if you and and I think one of the problems that's kind of characterized and frankly warped American politics in the past decade or so is apocalyptic language, making everything an existential threat. Now we the United States has faced some pretty important existential questions in the past ten or twenty years. But you can't make everything existential. Because if you do, first of all, basically, if we run around with our hair on fire all the time, what are you left with? Um, sometimes an election's just an election. And if you lose, the great thing or the bad thing about the American system is there's another one coming in two years' time. 
Now, I don't want to put words in David's mouth. I, he said something to, but I'm going to. He said words, something to the effect of, yeah, but this time there might not be another election in two years. David always says things like that to me off air. You'll get your chance. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but, but so although it seemed to work as a tactic, I'm very worried about, you know, because one, one of the problems is Donald Trump uses this rhetoric. Everything's an existential threat. You must come out and save the country. It, you know, our country's at stake. Our way of life is at stake. This is the, this is the you know, this is the, his stock and trade at his rallies. And it gets people fired up. It, it also drives people to extremes. Basically, the Democrats' position has always been, look, we're trying to be the responsible party and we're going to govern and do things like that. I don't think rhetoric like this, it might be, um, it, it might be useful in the short term to win an election. I'm not sure it's a good idea. David Robotin, you, and if I mischaracterize you, tough. <laughs> so, I mean, I think one of the things that's intriguing about this, this midterm elections is there were a number of election deniers on the ballot in, I think, about half the states. And almost all of those people lost, right? You know, and these were people who were running for jobs like Secretary of State, people who are in charge of deciding, is this election result valid? Are we going to certify this election? And if those people all of them are Republicans, had won. Then when we get to the next election, they could say, yeah, the returns say this, but I don't think that's valid. I'm going to give our votes, uh, you know, electoral votes, to this other candidate because I want to, or I think those are fraudulent, or I think the wrong people were allowed to vote, or some other kind of crazy nonsense that, that these people tend to traffic in. If that's the situation you're in where people are going to the ballot and they think my vote isn't going to count because the person who's counting the vote is going to decide whether my vote is valid or not using some kind of arbitrary feeling they have. What does that mean about democracy? What does democracy look like in a system where you effectively don't have a vote or feel like your vote is going to be thrown away? Um, and I think that is something to worry about. I think that, that democracies work when people have faith that, these, that, that their, the will of the majority of the people is going to be transferred through the vote to their elected representatives. And if, when that breaks, you know, what's the difference between that and a dictatorship? But it didn't. It didn't break because <laughs> didn't. people's because <laughs> they because, lost because people turned up to vote and right. because so Biden says show up to vote because this democracy is at stake and people showed up to vote and therefore we saved democracy because people showed up to no, vote. No, 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 no. I mean, may, we can't prove this, but but you know what? The 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 kind of fools and charlatans lost, and that you know you you. This is the second election in a row that on air you expressed concern that there was going to be violence on election day. There was no violence on election day. There was no violence around the. There Don't was violence know. on January sixth. There was not. Yeah. You know, David. They lost. Common sense. This was a good outcome for the American people, and regardless of your partisan position, in that sure, yes. common sense prevailed, and you got to have faith in the people to make the right choices, David. I okay, so as a, a <laughs> no, so, so so I think part of this is a reflection. Of, you know, I think we we all, as historians, one of the things we do is we we, we tend to frame things through the, the lens of particular time periods we study. Frank studies a time period where people are, are really excited about elections. Elections are a brand new things. They don't have a king anymore. All of a sudden, you get to vote for people. Isn't this awesome? I study a time period in which people decide they don't like the outcome of their election. They start to shoot at each other, kill three-quarters of a million people. And then when some people are asked, can we vote, please? They say, no, we're going to lynch you if you try to vote, right? So like that, the voting is a much dirtier 
and scarier process in the mid 19th century than it is in the late 18th and early 19th century. Um, and so, you know, I think my fear of, of elections and people's faith in democracy collapsing uh, is, I think, rooted in part in, in me looking at elections in the 19th century where people are scared away from the ballot. Why? Because people are waiting at the ballot box with a gun to shoot them if they do. And, uh, you know. But in 2020 and 2022, we had two of the cleanest elections in American history in terms of the votes were cast, the votes were cast honestly, the votes were counted honestly. Mm. That's, but, that, but that's a ended, fact, David. Yes, no, 100% you're right. It's a fact. But we also ended up with a, like half of Americans believe that it was not fair and were willing to vote for and to. Because of apocalyptic vote, rhetoric. rhetoric yes. We have to stop making everything an apocalypse. All right, let's run for another question <laughs> before the apocalypse <laughs> happens. Uh, this is about like, Trump v. DeSantis in 2024. Um, I like predicting the future because we as historians have no expertise in that. But okay, good. <laughs> if you listen to all 225 episodes, we're wrong all the time when we predict, so bring it on. Um, the nature of kind of the evangelical vote as a, as a kind of political block has shifted mm. quite a bit since 2016 as a lot of the more moderates who are kind of challenging Trump's character is sort of been forced out. Mm. And then DeSantis made a big kind of play um, in this most recent midterm for that sort of vote with his like God made a fighter election kind of campaign video. So when it comes down to that, with when you've got a lot of people who still support Trump versus kind of DeSantis making a play for the one with conservative values, do, who do you think is going to get that sort of voting block in kind of the next election? So the question is, how will the evangelical vote play? The white the, evangelical the, vote. the white evangelical vote play in the Trump DeSantis election uh, contest. So I think one of the things that happened in the past two presidential elections is that the white evangelical vote held their nose and voted for Trump, even though they know that Trump is not an evangelical and doesn't really abide by their particular precepts of, of how one should conduct one's life with all the examples one can think of. But they voted for him because they said he is the you know, route to getting rid of Roe versus Wade to end up with the Dobbs decision. They, they saw him as a conduit for doing those things. Um, now that, that we've had the Dobbs decision, I think their, their willingness to vote for Trump may not be in the same place that it was in the last two elections. That'd be my guess. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I think that the hardcore Trump voters, which I think are sort of maybe 35% of the, elect the Republican mm. electorate, maybe 20% of the general electorate. I'm talking the people who go to the rallies, the people who really love Trump. I think evangelicals make up a considerable, I, I don't know mm. for sure, but make up a considerable proportion of those. And one of the problems, one of the problems with the rhetoric in American politics currently, and I'm not blaming David for this, um, We've made it very difficult for those people to come back and say, oh, sorry, I got that wrong, right? Because And so this has fostered a sort of, it's often referred to as a cult. I, I don't say that kind of disrespectfully. I, I think those people are really committed to him, and it might be difficult for them to peel mm. off and say, well, I'm going to vote for the other guy. Even even if his, you know, DeSantis's religious bona fides seem a little more sincere than Trump's do. I, I, you know, I think there's no, right, yeah. there's no doubt about that. Um but I think that they don't necessarily have the space to just give up on Trump and say, yeah, I was wrong about that. 
I mean, I'm fascinated because you still see in parts of the country, although they are coming down, depending on where you are, Trump flags and signs and people's, I was driving through rural New York last week, um, New York State, not the, not the immediate environs of New York City, and you still see the occasional kind of fading Trump flag or sign in car, because it's a bit, how do you take that down? Like, the, like the, is there a day you say, you know, I, I was wrong about that. I'm going to take that down. A friend, I remember years ago after the, after 9-11 and, and when the war on terror was at its height, when everybody was slapping flags on their decals on their cars, American flags on their, on their cars, and yellow ribbons and all this kind of stuff. And a friend of mine said, you know, once you put one of those on your car, you can't take it off, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and to a certain extent, that's Trumpism for, for that hardcore people. So I think what you say is, makes perfect yeah. sense, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened, except I think there's a kind of almost emotional attachment that is going to be difficult to sever. It'll be fascinating mm -hmm. to see how that plays out in that context. And yes, yeah, so I had a question about kind of the allegations that Democrats were kind of pushing uh, the state um, like primaries in a certain direction in order to in in order to produce more like extreme candidates for them to run against. Do you guys think there's a truth to that, and do you think that approach, if it if that's what happened, if it worked potentially? There. So the question is about the Democrats encouraging and possibly funding more extremist candidates on the Republican side to run against, right? Yeah. Um, I think there is some evidence that they did that. I don't know how important it was. I think it's a really risky strategy. Mm -hmm. I think be careful what you wish for. There were Democrats back in 2015 and 16 saying, yeah, we want to run against Trump because we can beat him. Um, and look how that turned out for them. So, so mm -hmm. I, I think there is some evidence they did that, but it's very, very risky. What do you I, think? I know I think I think that's right. I mean, it, it, both parties do this to some degree, and historically have tried to sort of manipulate, um, you know, try to figure out who who they want to run against. You know, Richard Nixon did that a lot. Um, we know how that turned out. Um, so it isn't necessarily a, a new strategy, but it does seem to be be happening. People are trying to figure out, okay, what's the who do we want to run against, and then how can we get them to be on the ballot. So the question is how the January 6th hearings and other investigations into Trump will play out if the Republicans are in the, well, now that the Republicans are in the majority in the House. Or now they will have a majority in the House in January, right? So we still have another month and a, two months, really, a month and a half, of the Democrats being in charge of the House, which means, you know, things can happen in that lame duck session where the Democrats can continue the investigations that they are pursuing already, we found out, I think, what was it last night, that, that they would get access to Trump's tax returns after fighting for them for years and years and years. They're finally going to get access to them, and they'll have them for you know a week before they are out of office. Um, but I think once the Republicans do take charge of the House officially in January, all those investigations are going to stop. Yeah, and we're going to see loads and loads of investigations into Hunter Biden's laptop and every all kinds of uh, ima real well, or imagined scandals mm. that uh, that um, uh, by way of vengeance. I mean, they're they're expressing this. People like Matt Gates um, and Jim Jordan and Marjorie Taylor and, Greene and impeachments. Saying, they're yeah. talking about impeaching Biden. They're talking about impeaching Merrick Garland. They're talking about impeaching 
who knows? So it's go it's going to be ugly. It's going to be I don't nothing will come of these things because the Democrats will have a majority in the Senate. So so they won't go anywhere except they will have the power to convene committees and convene investigations. And they see this as kind of a just retribution and payback for the January 6 hearings. Uh, and that will continue. Donald Trump is in considerable legal peril because uh, there, there, are, there are a number of cases, too many to recount here, going on um, in investigations, several of which are at the state level that are, that are beyond the purview of the, uh, of, of the federal government that are trundling along. The wheels of justice grind very slowly in the United States, but he's in a bit of legal peril, or could be. Um, and the Justice Department, Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, could indict him. Um, and and so, so that won't stop, although the, if, if any actions are taken against Donald Trump, either at the federal or state level, hmm. the Republic, if the Republicans continue to have a majority in the House, they will use that majority to exact retribution and try to obstruct things, I think. So there's, Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to convene hearings on the treatment of the people being held in the jail in Washington, D.C., awaiting trial relating to January 6th, for example. And she says these are political prisoners being persecuted by the United States. It's nice that she's taking an interest in the kind of condition of prisoners in the United States. That, that's actually an important <laughs> issue. Uh, but these are, it's a particular set of prisoners mm -hmm. that she's, she's concerned about. Yeah, and I think it partially depends on how coherent the Republican Party in the House remains, because it is a diverse caucus of people. Yeah, and in a Trump versus DeSantis contest, so this, mm -hmm. all of this needs to be seen against the backdrop of the presidential race in 24. The debate that faces the Republicans, or the choice that faces them is, okay, we have to stop talking about January 6th, we have to stop talking about 2020, we have to stop talking about Trump, we have to move beyond this. That'll be what the DeSantis people are saying, that's what, the, that's what Fox News started to say a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. You know, I think that significant and powerful media voices on the right are going to be saying that. Some of them are going to be saying that. And others are going to be saying, Donald Trump is the victim of a witch hunt. We have to defend Donald Trump. You know, the country, the, the nation depends on it, et cetera, et cetera. So there's going to be a really interesting internal division in the Republican Party in the next two years over all of this. Sir, in the back. Yeah. Speak up. Yeah. So if Ron DeSantis were to run for the Republican nomination for president and beat Donald Trump for that nomination, what would Donald Trump's reaction be? Would he set with political parties to compete against? Uh, so the question is, what will how will Donald Trump react if defeated for the nomination by Ron DeSantis? Well, historically, he's always taken defeat with good grace and humility, <laughs> and I'm sure he'll write a very thoughtful memoir. <laughs> I mean, it's, an, it's a really good question because he wouldn't accept losing the presidential election in 2020. It's very hard to accuse the party you lead of being, well, the, the, corrupt. This isn't a great comparison, but it's the only one that comes to mind. In 1912, Teddy Roosevelt, who had been president, uh, but then leaves, and William Howard Taft is president for four years. Roosevelt runs for president again does not get the Republican nomination because people in the Republican hierarchy didn't want him to and they give it to, to Taft. And he starts his own political party for that election, the, the Progressive or Bull Moose Party. And that splits the Republican vote leading to Woodrow Wilson's election. Um, Do you think tr Trump would run as the third candidate? I, I think that's a possibility. I think he sees himself as being more important than the Republican Party as a party. I think his loyalty to the party is 
is slim to none if the party's not loyal to him. And I think the people who vote for Trump are going to vote for him, that, that, that hardcore, you know, the, whether it's a culture or not, they would vote for him if he decides to be, you know, whatever, pick random animal he wants to have as his party mascot now. But if he Allergy ran, if he runs, David, yes, he almost certainly can't win. If oh, he runs sure. as a third-party candidate, and the Democrat almost certainly would win, yes. as happened in 1912. And there's a lot of... It Bill Clinton was elected in 1992 because Ross Perot was a third-party candidate on the right. Mm. Then Trump would be responsible for four straight election losses in 2018, 2020, 2022, and 2024. The one thing Trump can't stand is being called a loser and associated mm. with being a loser. So does he... Does he Surely that's going to factor in. Well, the thing is, he said on a, Trump said on, on election night this time, on the, the midterms, he says, if the Republicans win big, it's because of me. And if they lose big, I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> Which I think sort of speaks to his ability to take credit for things he wants to take credit for and then absolve himself of responsibility for things that he doesn't want to take credit for. Um, and I think the same would happen in that case. I just think a third, a third party run would be so quixotic that there's no scenario in which it would work. No, no. But you know, making logical choices isn't always necessarily his, his bread and butter. We think we have time for one more question. Well, we got two. We got oh, okay, take two. Okay, fine. We take two. How would you interpret the, the timing of Trump's announcement of his candidacy, sort of both in terms of so soon after the results that weren't expected by the Republicans and so far away from? Um, So the question is, how do we interpret the timing of Trump's announcement to, to run in 24? David? Well, I think he hinted that he was going to announce even before the midterm. And I think what he was hoping for was there would be this red wave election. And then for, he could then claim credit for saying, look, everybody wants me back. And here I am to, to do that. And so I think he had um, sort of laid that out as on being sort of his plan. The response, though, to his announcement among the Republican circles has been very lukewarm. You know, they're, you know, other than his diehard supporters in Congress, they haven't been cheering him on particularly. Um, and that same has been true, I think, in at least the mainstream right-wing media, if that isn't a paradox. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it has become common now to announce your candidacy very early on. I mean, when Trump won, the, was inaugurated, uh, when he had the American Carnage speech, he announced he was running for re-election then, you know, so four years away, right? And so I think this idea that, you know, you, you announce as early as you can, it wasn't that long ago you announced you were running for president the same year the election was going to happen. Um, and that seems like a, you know, an entire world away now. Yeah, I mean, on the Wednesday or Thursday, I think it was the Thursday after the election a couple of weeks ago, the New York Post, which is a Murdoch-owned tabloid, mm. um, had an image of Donald Trump on the front page calling him Trumpty Dumpty mm. and likening him to Humpty Dumpty. So, and it said, Trumpty Dumpty had a great fall, didn't even build a wall, this kind of thing. So he was being taunted by Rupert Murdoch. So I think the combination of Ron DeSantis getting all the energy on the right and, getting, and being kind of blessed by the media that Trump really cares about really annoyed him. And that was part of what prompted him. I also think, he thinks, and he may be wrong about this, that by being a presidential candidate, that might preempt mm. the Justice Department 
bringing charges against him for his past misdeeds because it will appear that the Justice Department is engaging in politics and persecuting him. It makes it complicated for Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee is if the Justice Department appears to be pursuing a, a political opponent. And so I think there were, kind of, there were various um, factors in his thinking, but Dave is right there. It's also just, uh, he always intended to run, and I, uh, but I think he was really annoyed that Ron DeSantis was getting all that good press and he wanted to kind of steal a march on him and possibly protect himself. Last question to the, the, the woman who was here first, I think, today. So it's your question. Um, so in the 2020 election, there was kind of the idea of settle for Biden within the Democratic Party. So in the 2024 contest, do you think Joe Biden will have enough support within his own party to run again, or do you think there would be kind of a call for him to step down and potentially let a new, maybe younger person run for the Democratic Party? Inevitably younger. <laughs> so the question is, uh, wither Biden, uh, will there be pressure within the Democratic Party to, to replace him or not? I think it partially depends on what happens over the next year, right? I think people's memories in politics are short. Biden, I think, has impressed a lot of Democrats a lot more now that he's been in office over what he's done the past two years than what they were expecting. Uh, he's been more successful in terms of his legislative agenda. Um, obviously, there's been some things that have not gone his way. The, the pull out of Afghanistan being the, probably the most, uh, the largest example of that. And obviously, the, the economy is not going in his direction, although I think people recognize that it isn't necessarily his fault if you look globally. What do you think, Frank? I think if he's subject to remorseless and relentless attacks by the House of Representatives, mm. which he will be, Democrats will be minded to kind of rally around him. And I think that could work to his benefit. I think I'm the oldest person in this room, I suspect. I think his age is a problem, and I think his age is a real, presents the Democrats with a real conundrum. Mm. Um, because it, it, now Trump is not a young man if it's Trump. <laughs> and Trump seems to be uh, subject to the kind of uh, vicissitudes of aging more than Biden is. But Biden, Biden is old. He turned 80 the other day. Mm. I mean, Biden is an old man by any measure. And they, we, we no longer say, oh, well, 80 is the new 50, right? I mean, 80 is old. And uh, I think Biden's done a pretty good job. And he's exceeded expectations. But I think his age is, is, is going to be a challenge. And as I said a few minutes ago... Mm. I think if he runs against Trump, that's less of a problem because well, Trump's old too, and Biden's beaten Trump, and, and I think that he'd be probably in a good position to beat Trump. I think if he's running against a 40-something Ron DeSantis who has a young family and has young school-aged children, uh, you know, that, that's, that's going to present Biden with a problem and the Democrats with a problem. And as I said earlier, they can't wait to see what, how the Republican mm -hmm. yeah. battle plays out to, to make their decision. The other thing is, of course, given Biden's age, mm. Biden could die. Well, we, we all could die, of course. I mean, I, I'm mm. not wishing that on it. But, you know, you, you, let's not forget that, like, real life intrudes on things. Mm. And so it's possible that this might or, or become ill. So, so two years is, is a long time. So, so something else might happen. The problem, the challenge Democrats face is... Nobody can plan to run. Unless they, well, they, they face a dilemma. They can either challenge him outright, and challenging a sitting president is pretty unusual in the modern era. Mm. Ted Kennedy did it against Jimmy Carter in 1980. All he did was weaken Jimmy Carter and ruin his own reputation. So it's, I'm hard-pressed to think that anybody's going to do that. 
but it means nobody else can prepare. Nobody else will have a campaign organization. I mean, because running for president now is a full-time, well, it, it, is, it, it takes so long that anybody who's, who waits too long is going to be at a real disadvantage. It, it's a real challenge. Watch closely who visits on their, for their holidays goes to New Hampshire and Iowa, because those are great places to visit, but they're not usually holiday destinations. Especially um, in the wintertime. Exactly. <laughs> you know, if you're going to the state fair in Iowa, then that might mean something. Um, you know, thinking about if somebody else, Democrat, runs, the question then is who? And there isn't a clear, younger alternative that is, has made inclinations in that direction yet. But two years is a long time. And lots two years is a long time. And I worry less about that because I think, well, who, you know, Barack Obama was somebody who was known to people who really followed this stuff closely because mm -hmm. of his 2004 uh, address at the Democratic Convention. But Barack Obama wasn't really anybody in 2006, and he was president by 2009, having won in and 2008. So people Bill, do emerge. Bill Clinton wasn't anybody in you know 1991, right? And so yeah, yeah they're, so, they're they're relatively unknown but very talented people uh, in both parties um, that that could emerge as alternative candidates in the time to come. But thank you all for coming. You guys want to round of applause for yourself? Thank you all for coming. Uh... Cheers, man. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.